Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 6th, 2019, the underhanded, undercount edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. in New Haven at Yale, where she is associated with the Yale Law School, is the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And in New York City at his new office at 60 Minutes, CBS at 60 Minutes, is John Dickerson. How are you? Hi, David. Actually, I'm in the same recording booth, but um, but I'm oh, I've just come and across. Now, the afterward, from you my have to walk office. across the street. Exactly. Yeah, I have to dodge cars on 58 or 57th Street. It's harrowing. Oof. Yeah, that is harrowing. On this week's Gabfest, the Supreme Court gets ready to rule on the big census citizenship case, even as new evidence comes to light of the sneaky racist scheming behind how that citizenship question on the census was born. Then, will the president follow through on his plan to impose new tariffs on Mexico in an effort to get Mexico to change its migration policies? And then, should the Parkland security officer go to prison for his failure to help stop the school massacre at that school in 2018? Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we have two live shows coming up this Saturday. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, today, if you're listening to it on Saturday, if you're in New York, there's going to be Slate Day. It's an all-day extravaganza of podcasting in Manhattan, uh, on the High Line, in all sorts of different wonderful forms. There's a mom and dad are fighting play date. There's a trivia. The, uh, Nicole Cliff is going to be there. My my uh, my idol, Nicole Cliff, is going to be there doing some stuff. There's going to be a wave show. And there's a culture fest. It's I think there's a Trump cast. And we, of course, have a show from 2 to 3.30 on Saturday at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. I think we are sold out, but there are all-day passes you can still get, which would allow you access to our show. So if you can't haven't gotten a ticket to our show, but you want an all-day pass that will get you into our show, there's still plenty available. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that. And also a reminder that we are doing our first show internationally. We're going to Canada we're going to Toronto on Wednesday, July 10th at Kerner Hall and the Telus Center for Performance and Learning. You can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to that show. That is going to be very exciting. We're working on getting a great guest for that show as well. So we'll see you on July 10th in Toronto. This census case uh, is crazy. Secret evidence, an estranged daughter, a shadowy figure who is the Michelangelo of gerrymandering. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court... In their back rooms, in their in their cloistered, in their cloistered, becurtained chambers, contemplate a decision which could radically shift not just how we count the census, but how we apportion uh, we apportion votes, how we apportion uh, political power, how we, how, we, how we apportion political power in the country. Emily, what the heck is going on? Who is this fellow Hoffeller? Hoffeller? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! This is and like this is like a, a like a John Grisham novel had an accident with a Stephen King novel, and uh, and and Tom Clancy was like at the wheel. 
I thought you very, were gonna very you well were said. Added, I like that. Like, Scotus blog, <laughs> like <laughs> some super wonky um, co-author. Yeah, that yeah. This that is been a, a thriller of um, strange dimensions. So let's just back up for a second. We are talking about the Trump administration's decision to add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census in the face of evidence, um, very stark conclusions from the Census Bureau itself that adding this question is likely to reduce the accuracy of the census by discouraging and kind of spooking um, people who are immigrants and people who are networked with immigrants from responding to the census. So the idea is like you ask people about their citizenship, if they're not citizens or they live with people who aren't citizens, they're not going to be super excited to tell you all about themselves and give you their home address, though I should note that it is a violation of federal law to um, take census data and use it for anything other than its declared purpose. Anyway, lots of roiling around the census, which we've talked about before. And now we have this sort of sixth act in which the daughter of the Michelangelo of gerrymandering, as the New York Times calls him, a man named Thomas Hofeller, uh, her dad died, and then she found on his hard drives a, a very telling memo he wrote in 2015 in which he said that if you added a citizenship question to the census, Republicans could change the way that uh, states do redistricting. They could base it on this new data about the citizenship population, and that would allow them to redraw districts in a way that help white rural Republican voters. So this citizenship question addition looks like a big power grab. We had some inkling of this before because um, Chris Kobach, who is the um, architect of a lot of voter suppression tactics in Kansas, he, we knew, had met with the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross before Ross asked to add the citizenship question. And Kobach had already written for Breitbart about this very same idea of expanding Republican political power based on getting this new data from the census. But now we have this apparent smoking gun because it turns out that Hofeller also uh, helped to draft the letter that the Justice Department wrote to Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross in which it provided this what looks like false justification, oh, we need this data so we can enforce the Voting Rights Act. There's actually like a word-for-word paragraph in this letter that is based on a file on Hofeller's hard drive. And so it just – and he was also meeting with this guy Mark Newman who was advising Commerce Secretary Ross. There are a lot of dots to connect here. And the kind of underlying question is, okay – It was very hard to believe on its face the Trump administration's professed reason for adding this question in order to uh, better enforce the Voting Rights Act because this Trump administration does not has not shown any interest in really helping black and Hispanic voters through the Voting Rights Act. And the government never asked for this data before to enforce the Voting Rights Act. So it never looked like the real reason. And now we have what looks like real smoking gun evidence that, in fact, it was not. And the big question is whether the Supreme Court is going to care and even pay attention to this at all. And then what does that mean if they're not willing to look behind the curtain? I mean, Isn't it also not just not just to enhance white power? Didn't he explicitly say, isn't there explicit language, to reduce Hispanic yes. yeah, non, voting yes. power? Non- yeah, I mean, it's, so that's like that. It, how much more kind of well, exactly targeted racist can you be? Yeah, right. he I said mean, it would help t- Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. 
um, in his study. Uh, the Just to add a couple of things to what Emily said, so this fellow Newman was the one working with Hoffler, and basically they said, we don't know where this information came from. We don't know the author. Like, they... Uh, what's at stake here is lying also to uh, congressional investigators and also lying to the court. So the question, the first question is whether the Supreme Court, based on this new evidence that the um, Justice Department and Commerce uh, Department may have lied, there's also a a New York case, or is it New York or Maryland? I can't remember. But there are three judges that have not bought the administration's argument. I think either in New York or Maryland, they're trying to get the case reopened which would then complicate the Supreme Court case, right? Base, case opened on the idea, basically, that the administration has been lying about the real reason they're asking the citizenship question, which is what this is now about, which is the administration has said, as you said, it's about voting rights. This suggests that, no, it's about this other thing. Yeah. In so, Maryland, Emily- I think, or possibly the California case, they're trying to get the case reopened to introduce this evidence. In New York this week, there was a hearing before Judge Jesse Furman, who had presided over a trial on the question of adding the citizenship question. And the hearing was about whether to sanction the lawyers who had let in this false evidence and deal with this possible false testimony. And Judge Furman said he needed more time and briefing and like process to figure that out and that he wasn't going to make a decision before the Supreme Court is due to rule at the end of June. And so if there had been this hope of like quick movement at the district court level, at least in New York, that could put pressure on the Supreme Court to address this whole question about where this evidence came from and the role it played, that is not going to happen. The Supreme Court is going to have to reach out and find it in another way, which it could completely do if it wants to do that. So that's that was the question I wanted to get to. As a matter of Supreme Court practice, is it likely is it is it normal for the court to reach out and add evidence which was not introduced at trial even though the reason it wasn't introduced at trial was perhaps because it was withheld artificially um and do they have any obligation to do that and knowing what we know of this court i mean i'm going to answer this question myself <laughs> we're all answering it in our head is there any chance they're going to take the hoffler evidence into account the answer is in my head is no so just tell Wait, me so, I mean, They'll do it on some procedural ground, right? They'll, they'll say, like, well, the bus has... The train has left the station, right? They won't... So that they don't have to wrestle with... The, Tom Clancy drove the car away already. Yeah. The car... Clancy is already out of North Carolina. Right. Case closed. Like, I wrote the book. I can't add anything to it. But, of course, like... That is ridiculous. I mean, no, it's not normal for the Supreme Court to go back and reopen its proceedings, but there's nothing normal about this whole scenario. And when the government presents evidence and then there is new evidence emerging that suggests that the government's presentation was false, then absolutely courts can go back and order a new hearing. They can postpone their own ruling. You know, the Supreme Court could enter like a two-sentence order that just says, like, okay, we're staying our own um, opinion writing in this case, and we send this back to the district courts to build up the record and get to the bottom of what happened, and we'll see you next term. There's also a time element here, which is that the census has to go out the door uh, relatively soon to get going, right? So doesn't that add a, a little bit of drama here in, and just to remind, Emily's already said this, but for people, the reason this is so important is if the census isn't right and you just do the citizen population, you're not counting a lot of people of color who tend to live in democratic places. 
Right. Right. I mean, yes, absolutely. You're right. I guess I shouldn't have said we'll see you next term. They could just make everyone speed up and deal with this quickly. Like it is entirely possible for them to take this new evidence into account if they choose to do so. But I think David's right. Like we all think the ideological makeup of the court makes that extremely unlikely. And then like, where are we? I mean, there's a way in which this is cases like the travel ban case, but it's also worse because the travel ban, by the time the Supreme Court approved it, it had at least the fig leaf that the Trump administration had had to go back twice and then three times and revise its travel ban and make it look like a proper government rulemaking uh, process. This time we've had zero of that. And so you know, it's the Trump administration is forcing the Supreme Court to basically like paper over these really glaring procedural problems with the kind of fig leaf of like, oh, case closed. We're not going to look at this anymore. Like we just accept on its face the government's rationale for adding the citizenship question, no matter how implausible. And that just sort of strains people's faith in courts and in law. Roberts and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh all to me seem to be people who it's very they they are less outcome oriented perhaps than than Alito and and Thomas are. They do seem to care about process and that they're you know people don't lie to courts and that courts are trusted authorities and that mm. rules are followed and and it's surprising to me that they would be willing to tolerate so much dishonesty, so much deception, like a complete and obviously an obvious utter lie that the government has told about why they're doing this particular thing. And then the government not abiding by procedures that it says it has to abide by in order to put a right. question like this down on, on the census. And and so I would have thought there would be some way in which at least Roberts and, and maybe, as I said, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would be quite bothered by that and might and might stand up against something like that. But yet they, I don't think they will. Yeah, I don't think we have a whole lot of evidence that when there's real political power at stake that those three justices put procedural um, principles, the ones you were just talking about, ahead of that chance to increase Republican political power. And I guess I'm thinking particularly of Justice Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case, where, you know, if you read his opinion for the majority, and this is like a big five to four conservatives versus liberal split, he says things have changed dramatically in the South. Like we don't need this um, prophylactic part of the Voting Rights Act anymore that prevented states from changing their voting rules and doing things like closing polling places unless they had the approval of the Justice Department. And it just isn't an opinion that um, stacks up against reality. Like the states then went and made a couple of thousand different but changes to their I, rules. And so I just don't I, I'm really argue buy with it. you about that. But 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 that was he I, I thought, look, he obviously wrong. The, obviously, what has happened is exactly the opposite of what they said was going to happen. But that's but post. I think that's I don't think that's post hoc reasoning. But I mean, there was a afterwards. lot of evidence he beforehand. Didn't, he, he didn't definitively know that all those things would happen. But there was evidence beforehand that the states were trying to do things that like absolutely were going to have that effect. And the Justice Department was repeatedly blocking them from doing that. So the notion that like they would stop. I mean, right. This is the case in which uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent says, like, when it's raining outside and your umbrella is keeping you dry, you don't close it and expect not to get wet. Right. Like he did have warning. But but David's point. I mean, this is a 
this is a bit of a tangent, but but David's point is that in this case, there is an interest being trampled that Roberts uh, would seem to care about. Whereas is that really was that really the case in Shelby? In other words, what you're, you seem to be arguing, Emily, is he just made the wrong call there. And there was plenty of evidence for why he should have made the right call. In this case, it seems that what because uh, I sort of agree with what David's saying is that in this case, not only did they not follow the proper procedure, the first go round here, we now have pretty strong evidence that they also lied in a court of law, they being the administration, and that Roberts would seem to have, and I don't know about the other two, would seem to have some interest in people kind of playing by the rules as one of his core principles. And that's why doing the thing that would increase conservative power would run up against a more core principle than with Shelby. Um, But maybe, maybe I don't remember Shelby right. Well, I mean, the reason another reason I think that Shelby also in its different own way was about playing by the rules is that Congress had just reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court normally defers to legislation like that and to legislative findings about the need for a law of of that sort. And yet, like the conservatives, um, you know, didn't uphold that principle in that particular case. I think the analogy with the travel ban and um, the census case is closer because we're talking about the power of the executive branch through a federal agency. And so you're right. Like we have or we want to hold out this notion that there are these principles about how agencies make rules and they're politically neutral and judges of all ideological stripes should care about them. But I don't think the travel ban decision really bears out that notion since it had its own five to four conservative versus liberal split. And, you know, we'll see with this one. I want to move us on to the sort of why this citizenship question came to be. One purpose of it is is just seems to be maybe a pure undercount. And there's estimates that this would reduce the black and Hispanic uh, census count by 4 million people in the 2020 census. That's a pretty conservative estimate, but that's a huge number of people and that would have ripple effects. But the other reason is that it would allow the government to now know how many citizens are in each state, each congressional district, each county. And therefore, if you wanted to have a law that allowed only that allowed apportionment to be based on the number of citizens, you could now do it because you would now have good data. So my question to one of you, probably to you, Emily, since you are the legal eagle on this, what does it take to move from gathering this data on citizenship to states actually being able to use that to only count citizens for the purposes of apportionment for either federal or state elections? Can they just go ahead and do this or do they need to take other steps before they can go ahead and just say, we're only going to count citizens? There is nothing to stop states from changing the way they apportion to the citizen-based population for state elections. The Supreme Court ruled in this 2015 case called Evanwell versus Abbott that the states didn't have to do that. They could keep doing it the way they've always done, which is just like people, not citizens. But they didn't shut the door to a state trying to change this practice. And so I think that if once this data is collected, you can expect some Republican-leading um, states to, to try this out. It's hard to imagine, again, that the Supreme Court would stop them. Can but I ask you a question? That is not for federal elections. Right. Federal elections have a different rule um, because one person, one vote really means one person, one vote in the Constitution. States have to use the total population count, not the citizenship count. That comes from the words in the 14th Amendment. 
Couldn't somebody who feels that they have uh, not gotten a benefit because of the di- because the distribution of benefits is tied to a bad count sue and use this material, the Hoffler material, in the in their lawsuit for arguing why? Or you could just argue, let's say we change the makeup of congressional districts and a state loses, particularly a blue state loses a member. Could they use this then as grounds and? Uh, this new evidence as grounds to launch legal proceedings and you wouldn't have the problem that the Supreme Court is likely to grab here, which is, you know, the train's already left the station. We wrote our opinion. You know, we we had our debate, had our opinion. We've written our opinions. Yeah. Well, but the census data will have been I mean, I think once you've gathered the census data, the data exists. You can't sort of pretend it doesn't exist. Well, right. But but couldn't you as a state say the data exists, but the data is faulty. And based on this faulty data, you're taking away a member of Congress and that shouldn't be. Yeah, that's going to we'll have we'll have those challenges. States have definitely mounted those challenges before. They they generally lose, though. Yeah. So it sounds to me, Emily, that you think that we're likely to see this done for state elections. So a state like Mississippi or Louisiana or Texas is going to say, we're only, for the purposes of apportioning our state legislature, we're only going to count how many citizens live in a district. Right. I mean, this goes back to Hoffeller's study in 2015. Like, this was legal after the Supreme Court's decision in Evanwell. And the thing that was standing between states trying this and actually doing it was a lack of complete census data. So now you've checked that box. Why wouldn't the states try to do that? What do you guys think? I, I actually find myself oddly ambivalent about this, and I know I'm wrong. And constitutionally, of course, it says one person, one vote. But what is the argument against just counting citizens for the purpose of apportionment? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I don't think that there's necessarily like an incredibly great argument against well, that. Well, okay. So first of all, it's citizens of voting age. So I mean, you go back to this principle. Of Why like, should it be citizens of voting well, age? That's what, shouldn't what it just be citizens? That's what everybody talks about. It's called the citizen voting age population is what they would use, which leaves out children, right? I mean, I suppose you could include Oh, I would, right. Well, I, I don't approve that. I would say you'd include but look, the children. When you're a, but, okay. So imagine like you're a state legislator. Do you represent the immigrants and foreign born people who are not citizens who are in your district? Like there they are. They are human beings. They also have needs and wants and rights. And so the idea is like you don't care about them because like they're not counted in the in the sense of representation, right? Like that's that has to be the principle if you're going to change but, this. But they still live in your district. But but they still live in your district yeah, and they don't have there, the but, they don't have the capacity to vote for you anyway. So you st- your your ability to represent them is no different than it was before. It's simply right, a matter but of counting. The principle like, of disenfranchising them means that you basically this government is saying like these people. But you're not don't disenfranchising count. them. They're not enfranchised because they are not citizens. They're not, they haven't well, been disenfranchised. disenfranchised. They're just not them. franchised. You're you're, they, you're right. They didn't have the vote before, but you're taking away any notion that they count right in the course of representation. And so I think that idea to me, there's something noxious about it. Well, what imagine, and I don't think that you have a scenario like this, but imagine you you had a district, you had a place where there was literally every single person that lived there was an immigrant. A non-citizen. A non-citizen immigrant. Then nobody can vote, and then you don't and, have a, a district like that. Well, you could, no, the district would exist. Nobody would vote. Like, nobody could get elected. There would be no votes. But <laughs> but why should that just, that's an absurd situation to imagine, right? It's ludicrous. It shouldn't happen. 
Yeah, but it also doesn't happen. Like, isn't that one of those, like, you can create a hypothetical in which, like, yes, if we ever reached that place, it would be crazy. But, like, we, that's not the world we live in. So who cares? Can I just weigh in? And I think it's true that we have about somewhere between 13 and 14 million um, lawful permanent residents, which is the class we're talking. I mean, one portion of the class we're talking about here, people who are. Yeah. What about them? In the country legally, but not citizens, which is distinct from people who are in the country, not legally. Uh, so that's another group. But hey, um, can I just ask one more legal question of you, Emily, which is what is the grounds on which the Supreme Court uh, conservatives would judge in favor of the administration? What would they uh, hang their argument on since three lower courts have said that the administration can't do this? Yeah. So the legal claim here, the main one is under the Administrative Procedures Act. And the argument is that the Trump administration screwed this up so badly that it's rulemaking in adding the citizenship question. It was arbitrary and capricious. That's the legal standard. So the Supreme Court just says, like, no, it wasn't. We believe them. Sure, this could be to enforce the Voting Rights Act better. Like, they say that's what they're doing. That's must be what they're doing, like case closed. You know, normally the government wins cases where they're changing the rules under the Administrative Procedure Act because you just, like, follow a set of procedures and it's not that hard to do. <laughs> Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GapFest, other Slate podcasts. So today's Slate Plus segment, we're going to discuss the protests against President Trump on his, during his visit to Great Britain. And is it good or bad when foreigners deride and mock and protest an American president visiting their country? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and hear that discussion and other Slate Plus bonus discussions. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This week, Mexican and American negotiators have been trying to resolve the latest Trump trade crisis, trade slash immigration crisis. The president has declared he's going to impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican trade. If Mexico doesn't tighten up its own migration policies, if it doesn't keep asylum seekers in Mexico, if it doesn't control Mexico's southern border to prevent the flow of Central American migrants, if it doesn't stop the migrant caravans from making their way across Mexico. The president also says the tariffs will increase every month up to 25% if Mexico doesn't meet these demands. Um, there's been a lot of pushback from the Republican Party. John, Mexico 
Mexico has sent its negotiators very quickly and you know clearly I don't think any anyone in who has a me- economic interest in Mexico particularly wants these tariffs to happen um, but so far at, at the time of our taping on Thursday morning they don't seem to have had the breakthrough that has satisfied President Trump or or Vice President uh, Pence so is this a madman approach by Trump that that could work that could you know compel Mexico to make some serious changes in the migration policies that that uh, they wouldn't otherwise make in order to forestall these tariffs I, I I don't know but I I think there's evidence um, and uh, I think there's a I think you could make that case um, I mean I guess the first thing is um, one of the articles that that I read talked about um, you know the purported crisis uh, of unlawful immigration across the border. Uh, last month was the largest month in seven years of um, migrants uh, being arrested at the border, um, which was up 32% from April. So, like, this isn't a non-problem. That's di- distinct from the question of whether you need to send the military and need to do these tariffs. But it's not a it's not a non it's not a non problem now, and it's also distinct from whether the remedies being put in place. Um, uh, tariffs and others, a wall and so forth, actually do anything to meet the problem. In terms of whether this is the madman theory, I mean, I think we, I've tried this theory out before, but is essentially that the that uh, on some things I wonder whether the president doesn't have a kind of Munchausen by proxy approach to governing, which is creates a crisis, creates a, a, a dust up, and then a bunch of people scramble around and, and do things to fix the crisis that he's created. In this case, the crisis is increased cost of consumer goods for U.S. Uh, consumers, which based on some studies, Mexico plus what's happening in China plus, um, is already eating away at um, and will have eaten away at the benefit lower and middle income people got from the tax cut, um, hurting people at the lowest income portion, lowest portion of the income scale. Uh, more than anybody else. So the cr- creates all this crisis. Some kind of solution is found. The president says, see what I did? Solved it. Even though the progress in some cases is merely uh, reasserting the status quo that was there before the crisis happened. I also think that the president, will, uh, going back to my elevator analogy, I think he wants to push the buttons that he can push. And in this case, this is something he can do to this issue. The open question, I would say one other thing, if the Fed is really thinking about cutting rates, that's another thing the president wanted them to do. He was said they were crazy to raise rates. Now they're talking about lowering rates in order to deal with this um, tariff madness. So you could imagine him saying, see, I got the agreement with Mexico and I got the Fed to lower rates, which I'd been trying to do because it was killing our economic uh, growth. So those are some thoughts in response to your madman theory. This is, one should obviously say, no way to run a railroad. And during the Obama administration, so often he was attacked for uh, the lack of certainty that he um, uh, that his policies were creating in the business world and in the in the uh, and in the markets. And I mean, obviously, uh, this is a huge dose and constant dose of uncertainty from the president. Emily, there's been this actual. There's been actual pushback from Republican senators who are irate about the prospect of tariffs. They think it's uh, the wrong mechanism, that it's effectively it's a tax on American consumers and American firms. And theoretically, if if Republican senators oppose these tariffs, they have there's it's a veto proof. If they can also round up some House Republicans, you could have a veto proof 
group in both houses of Congress that could stop the president from doing this. And yet. And yet we also know that will never happen. They will not fall into line or they will fall into line when the time comes, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there is a spectacle aspect of this, which is to watch the Republican Party, which um, I thought was a party of free trade, become so willing to um, totally throw a monkey wrench into free trade. And I feel like the thing, one thing about tariffs is the longer-term implications of them because they disrupt all these cross-border markets that mm-hmm. we've – the companies have put enormous work into building, right? So like these supply chains where you make part of something and then you send it to Mexico and they make part of something and you send it back to America and like that's how we make cars and that's how we make a million different things. If we're really going to put a big cost on doing business that way, that is going to just have all kinds of ripple effects. I mean, obviously, we could have this conversation about China, too. But Mexico, like our closest neighbor and like seamless trading partner in the wake of NAFTA, like this is a big deal. And I don't really feel like there's we know how that all plays out. Right. But I I, I mean, I'm a I'm a generally an avid free trader. And so it's easier for me to make the argument you just made than I think it is for you to make it, Emily. Why is it so wrong to throw a wrench in global trade to get policy gains on something that is a different matter? If if you believe that migration, that the migration crisis is a real crisis, and if you want to put pressure on the Mexican government, you don't want to go to war with Mexico. You don't want to send troops to Mexico. You don't want to like bomb Mexico. You don't want to murder migrants. I mean, maybe this administration does, but um, why is it so? Why is it so? Uh, why put free trade on this pedestal where we can't we can't possibly disrupt these supply chains? These supply chains are much more important than anything else. Well, we else. care about well, being. Why is this not a legitimate use? I mean, there's a question of whether the president actually has the authority to do it. But why is it not legitimate to say, okay, free trade is one of the mechanisms that we have to put pressure on other countries for policy matters that we really care about? So let's use it. I mean, I think we generally don't because we like the idea of America becoming wealthier and more important in the global economy rather than walled off from it. And those have been pretty sacrosanct political principles. But I also think your argument made more, much more sense in the context of China where you're using trade policy to address problems of trade policy, right? Like the Chinese are stealing all this intellectual property. And so – and they really are doing things to prop up their own industries. So at least tariffs feel like they're – Apple's responding to apples, even if it's still a misguided idea. Whereas, like, the Mexicans aren't to blame for the instability in countries like Guatemala that are sending, in w- from which people are fleeing because of violence there. And the notion that Mexico, a much poorer country in the United States, is supposed to just, like, stop all these people or hold on to all these people, like, it just seems. So at so a problem where the problem and this tariff solution do not align. Another thing I would add, I, I mean, I'm I'm uh, susceptible to your your argument, David, because we use embargoes and economic threats to com- countries all the time to get them to do other things that we want. So this seems in keeping with that. But the president's uh, not being straight with what's going on here. I mean, he's claiming that these tariffs are going to bring money into the U.S. The same way he's claiming the same thing with China. Um, and he's being contradicted in public by his economic officials, let alone every other breathing economist on the planet. Um, uh, and nevertheless, he continues to say things in support of this policy that are not true. 
So that's not good. You should be able to argue for this policy on its own terms, not have to lie and spin to uh, to do it. And the second reason you don't, you maybe don't want to do it, is that you're bonking on the head the very. I mean, at least based on the analysis of the Tax Foundation and the University of Pennsylvania, the tariffs that the president has enacted so far are hurting the people that he devoted his inaugural address to, the forgotten man, so the people at the lower and and, uh, middle fifth of the income scale. Now, you could make the case, hey, a little shared sacrifice so that we can straighten these things out. Problem is, uh, in the case of China, straightening out means uh, fixing the intellectual property right arrangements, and that helps um, uh, pharmaceutical industries and... Right, the pharma- and the pharmaceutical uh, corporations. So the question is whether even in the corrected balance of trade the president would like, whether the, the rewards would flow to the voters that he says he's in there swinging for. Emily, do you, do you think there's a way in which the strong economy has just protected Trump from the consequences of all of these various uh, – wild swings and variegations on trade. Yeah, I do think that's true. I also think the parts of the country that are hardest hit, you know, some of the farmers who've been hit, they're in like deep Trump country in which it's hard to get people to shift their allegiances when they were based on so many sort of like cultural or deep feelings of alienation Mm -hmm. from Democrats as well as affinity for Trump. Then the other thing is like if the Fed is going to shield Trump and the country from the consequences, then that is also going to put off implications of all of this. And I just feel like there is a way in which Trump makes a lot of moves that if you cared about the medium or the long term, you would not make. But he doesn't care about the medium or the long term at all. Like he won't be in office when um, we pay the price. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Peterson, the resource officer, the, the, the cop, the security guard at Parkland, uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Florida, was charged with 10, 11 counts, 11 felony counts this week, 10 of them related to sort of neglect, uh, his failure to provide care to the children under his care. And the way in which he failed to do that is when there was this terrible attack by a school shooter in 2018, Peterson stood outside the school, never entered, never attempted to stop the shooter, never moved to save any of the children or put his his own life at risk. And he is now facing, I think, life in prison, actually. If, if, yeah, I up think, to 100 years, I think. Yeah, it's some crazy yeah, sentence. If, if convicted. So it's a really complicated case and a really complicated issue because obviously – the villain, there's one villain in this case. It is the the Shooter. murderer who came and slaughtered his his classmates. And Peterson is not that person. Peterson, you know, was a, apparently a coward uh, or or confused in the moment. And the question is whether it is useful, whether it is valuable, whether it is right to hold him criminally accountable for a terrible mistake that he's made and and 
a, a sin perhaps that he's committed. So, Emily, I want to start with you. Does it make sense to you that there have been criminal charges filed against Peterson? Not really. I mean, for one thing, I just, I mean, I understand the impulse to blame him, and I do think he behaved in a pretty indefensible manner. But I just feel like this is what we do, right? Like, we pick one person and we scapegoat them instead of coming up with some solution that is more likely to prevent future terrible shootings, like having more restrictions on gun ownership. And so it just upsets me that, like, this is the um, this is the consequence and the kind of, like, thing we can hold up. Like, oh, we did this. We put this one cowardly police officer in prison for a long time instead of, like, really changing the underlying conditions that informed what happened here. I guess you can argue that this is a wake-up call for other cops in this position, and it will be easier for police officers in the moment to remember that they a dereliction of duty can have serious consequences. I really think, though, this prosecution is not going to work. Um, like, the statutes that he's being charged under, they're not meant for cops. They're, like, about neglecting kids. It's like usually duties that we uh, associate and put on to parents, not the police. But, Emily, it's also the case, you know, you, you can't have a – I mean, I think it would be very bad to have a system where police officers or the military, where if you don't do your job, where if your job is to protect people and you, you just like, hey, I'm not going to do it, that there's no – responsibility. But it's not that there's no responsibility. Like in the military, in the military, right? Like there's, there's, I hate this idea that the Mm. only consequence is putting someone in prison and criminally prosecuting them. Like there are other consequences. Right. Right. But in the military though, this ends you, you know, this is, puts you in the brig. You can get, you can get uh, desertion. You get hanged for desertion, you know, historically. Yeah. Well, do we want to treat people who are in law enforcement inside the country and are not in the military as if they're in the military? I don't know. John, did this does this solution feel or this this remedy feel like a useful piece of a, a remedy? No. Well, no. I mean, for the for a version of the reasons that Emily cites, which is that the complexity here goes beyond whatever you may feel about uh, guns and gun rights. I mean, there were 18 calls uh, warning about the, the shooter. The FBI admitted that they ignored uh, real tips uh, about the shooter. Um, and then there were there was. Maybe it's just the fog of the moment, but the initial response from um, the other responding officers was not seamlessly perfect in all ways in communication and so forth. So um, and I also I don't know enough about the training to um, because I know and I uh, so I don't know enough about training to um, make a claim here, period. However, I, I do know. And again, I don't know if that's the case in here, but that the that the training has changed in terms of how um you respond to these i mean that i think that the the view now is that you rush in and you go in and you don't wait and you uh, but that there was a period in which the response to school shooters was to wait again i have no idea if that's the case here but it does uh, but but i say all of that to how peterson was was trained matters too what we would all want is some kind of sanction for somebody who uh, doesn't just do their job poorly, but who does the opposite of their job. And as a result, you know, more people are killed. In this case, we're really talking about the students and teachers who were killed on the third floor because the ones on the first floor, I think it was 11 of the 17, 
it was over almost instantaneously. Nobody could have done, there was no resource officer who could have done anything. But the claims here are about, um, you know, what could have happened on the, on the third floor after, which, which, you know, might've been possible. I also, um, there's also the question of whether he lied about his response and what it was. And that obviously we don't want in any, in any, uh, in any situation separate and apart from the bravery question. It is, I think, Emily, your point that this is the classic example of the scapegoat is really useful. The idea of a scapegoat in the Bible is that this is a creature on which you put all of everyone's sins and then send this off, this goat off into the wilderness to die. Peterson is not exactly this because Peterson clearly bears some sort of culpability. There's some way in which he he failed in his duty. But the notion that, that prosecuting him solves these deeper structural problems, the one John just identified around the warnings about the shooter, the fact that uh, guns are so readily available to people, the fact that we have a culture where where school shootings are familiar and thus have, are viral, they're contagious, and, and so it makes it much easier for people to do school shootings, uh, mentally easier to do it. I mean, all of those things allow us to avoid our own culpability, our own responsibility for these shootings, which is that we have failed to create an environment where children can be safe because we are unwilling to attack these other these other issues and unwilling to do harder things, politically harder things, in order to make ourselves and our children safer. The one the one argument against that in this case is that Florida did pass some new gun safety laws. It did pass laws around arming teachers. It did pass laws uh, or changed how police are supposed to respond to it. So it's not this. This is not the only thing that. Florida is doing in response to the Parkland shooting. You could say that this they are they actually are pursuing this kind of mosaic approach, and that yes, Peterson is a scapegoat, but he's, it's not the only act of reflection and action that Florida's taking. Yeah, I think all of that context is really important. And then there's just this question about whether this single prosecution will have the kind of effect on other police officers that would make you see that like, oh, some good can come of it. And then there's just this sort of pure question of retribution, right? I mean, there are parents of the kids who died who are saying like, may this person rot in hell. And you can understand if you felt like someone had the duty to protect your child and could have saved your child's Mm -hmm. life and just like stood there quaking, that that would feel like something you wanted revenge for. I wonder though about taking the energy, there's been such amazing energy from the Parkland students in particular and some of these families and then channeling it into like revenge-filled trial and criminal proceeding. I just wonder about the the good that that's going to do. Just to make one small point and then, John, you can have the last word on this, but I don't think there's an epidemic of cowardly police officers no. or mm-hmm. cowardly mm-hmm. school security officers. <laughs> this is not a problem that we have that we're, that we're now going to solve by prosecuting Peterson. Like th- what's remarkable is how brave – People have been. Every, people of all kinds yeah. are. I mean, teachers have been, children have been, police officers have been. It's it's astonishing how brave people are. And so, so this is not a this is not an epidemic, right? And in the last few months, we've had a couple of students who have rushed um, shooters and died in the course of trying to protect their classmates. The hero movement is really uh, interesting because you see it in the way um, the 
media and the police are dealing with these shootings as well, which is that um, the police in Virginia um, Beach after the recent shooting there said they were only going to mention the shooter's name once and never more. And the media that covers um, and overcovers these shootings has, it feels like over the last couple of years, maybe last year, turned from obsessing about the shooter to spending more time talking about the, the heroes and the victims. And I'm fascinated what what that will do to, to change the appetite and the obvious search for kind of a weird kind of fame from the people who who uh, engage in these shootings. Um, and on your point, David, that that's... That's why um, police and first responders are so amazing is that this is what they sign up for. They, they, and we all used to think about it in terms of 9-11, but they sign up for when everything awful in the world is happening and everybody's running out of a building, they run in. It feels like that's, that still happens all the time and that this is an actual, like a major aberration that, that doesn't need a punitive remedy for the purposes of educating others. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When... You are having a summer drink, a summer cocktail, beginning of summer, summer solstice cocktail. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? So um, some GabFest listeners know uh, the main character in my podcast that was based on my book, Charged, is a young man in Brooklyn named Tarari. And I got an amazing text from him this morning, amazing for him, amazing amazing in the world, that he just signed up for classes at St. Francis College in Brooklyn for the fall and got what looks like a nice, healthy financial aid award to go to school. So I'm just feeling really excited and thrilled for Terari that he's taking that next step, and I can't wait to support and encourage him um, in pursuing his education. That's wonderful. Jean Valjean, what is your chatter? Ah, uh, Mine is uh, about a, n- a new Pew poll about which I'm not sure what I think. But anyway, it's about the idea of what they call made-up news. So 50% of the country, uh, or sorry, 50% of those surveyed said made-up news is a very big problem in the country today. That's ahead of violent crime, racism, illegal immigration, terrorism, and climate change. So my reaction to this is, what what are your terms and what are we... And one of the things that I think has been a problem with the term fake news is that the president has been able to successfully... um, He's able to use the idea that some news is wrong and incorrect and make basically fake news apply to anything he just doesn't like. So it can be 100% verifiable, but he'll call it fake news. And that we in the culture have kind of lapsed into that. People use the term fake news now all the time, which means they're doing his work for him. And by his work in this specific instance, I mean changing the definition of what news is and basically making news equal anything that Donald Trump doesn't like. And so I feel like this is also being picked up in this survey, which found that those people who think that made-up news is a problem – Who do they blame? 57% blame political leaders. So that seems like a category mistake because political leaders don't aren't involved in news. They're not. So to say that they are muddies the water and therefore allows anybody who wants to make journalism where people care about facts and get in trouble if they don't have their facts right. It kind of lumps that in with anybody who's just riffing about information. And so I think this is a, uh, 
a huge problem that even though people and and that people should hold politicians for, to account for spreading information that's untrue. But what does this poll show? The percentage of adults who say what group has the most responsibility in reducing the amount of made up news? Not the politicians who are saying stuff that ain't true, but they respondents said 53 percent. So the largest by a huge margin is that the news media is responsible for making this up. So. That also seems to me to be a problem. You should hold people to account who say the stuff that ain't true, and uh, that's the end of that. All right, my chatter is about two stories, related stories, dismal fucking stories. So there's so many problems with what the Trump administration is doing with migrants who are appearing at our borders, and and there are so many like legitimate discussions about the right, the proper kind of policy response. But as, as we learned with the children in cages. Uh, and family separation policies that the administration pursued. Once somebody is in your care, you have an obligation to care for them. And especially if that person is is vulnerable, either because they're sick or old or weak or young. And there are two stories this week that really depressed me. One is the news that the Trump administration is canceling almost everything that makes life tolerable for young migrants, child migrants in U.S. shelters. So English classes, uh, legal aid for unaccompanied child migrants, soccer and other recreation basically are saying we only have money to do food and shelter and that's it. And like that is not sufficient. That's not sufficient. If you have these children under your care, you have to do more than simply give them food and shelter. You have to find a way to make their life tolerable and, and keep them in progress. And then there's a second story that was in Yahoo!, uh, Yahoo News about the the very strong evidence that Border Patrol is confiscating medicine that people are bringing over the border, necessary medicine, and not and then not uh, replacing it. So typical policy is if you, if you come over the border with medicine, you explain this to a doctor, an American doctor, and that American doctor then issues you a new prescription to ensure that your medicine, your necessary medicine, continues. And this is to you know prevent some plague of, of people bringing in illegal drugs or something. I mean, I think it's a ludicrous thing they're preventing against, but at least understand the idea that, okay, you, you don't want people to bring in airsats medicine or, or, or drugs under the cover of medicine. That's fine. But you have to then give the child their seizure medicine, give the adult their diabetes medicine, give the person their blood pressure medicine. And it appears that what's happening is these meds are being confiscated and then People are not just not getting any medicine in return, and so they're living on a knife's edge. And that's that's monstrous and immoral, and we should be ashamed that the government is doing that. So there's that. Um, I also, of course, want to talk about listener chatter because we've gotten lots of really great listener chatters from you. Please keep them coming. Please tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest or email us at gabfest at slate.com with your listener chatter or put them on the Facebook page. This one comes from at J.D. Rannyman, Starbuck and Ripley Forever. I don't know what that Starbuck and Ripley Forever is, but whatever it is. And Starbuck and Ripley Forever says, for all the hand-wringing about social media, we forget the benefits of modern technologies and a link to a story about how the collapsing crime rates of the 90s might have been driven by cell phones. And this very interesting story, which was in The Atlantic, about how – the arrival of cell phones seems to have diminished gang violence because there was less fighting over territory. That once cell phones cell phones arrived, drug dealing became less territorial than it had been, and so there was less need to fight about it. 
and therefore there was just a diminishment in violence. And that's, you know, that's good news. That's all right. That's nice. Anyway, interesting story. So please send us your your cocktail chatter ideas by tweeting to us at, at @slategabfest. Also, I just want to welcome some new Slate Plus members. Shelley Hutchins from Farmington, North Carolina. Welcome Kathleen Evans from St. Louis, Missouri. Howdy, Kathleen. Tanya, no last name, from South Bend, Indiana. Hi, Tanya. Beth Miller from Philadelphia, PA. I'm sure you'll run into Emily on the street one of these days, Beth. Kata Mazur from Los Angeles, California. How you doing, Kata? Thanks for joining Slate Plus. That's our show for today. The Gap is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is our managing producer for Slate Audio, and Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Thanks to Alan Pang, Danielle Hewitt, and Ryan McAvoy for engineering today's show. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see some of you, some of you, on Saturday in New York for our Slate Day live show. And we'll talk to the rest of you all next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? There were Brits by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, protesting President Trump's visit to the United Kingdom this week. Uh, The president called those protests fake news, even though they were very real. They existed. There was a huge baby, baby Trump balloon. Trump as a a kind of crying, hysterical baby, uh, a blimp, a blimp of Trump. There was a duchess who did some side eye at the Trump's. There was a lot of mockery of the Trump's poor tailoring of their uh, morning coats. Is it good, John? Is it, a, is it a positive sign for the world when the president of the United States goes abroad and is met with, with derision and protest? Well, I don't know if it's a positive sign for the world. Um... Yeah, you know, my preference would be that it was on policy issues. Um, And and there's a bit of a tradition of um, protest when American presidents particularly go to Great Britain. In uh, 84, they protested Reagan for the buildup of missiles in Europe. Gavis fans, uh, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash Gavis Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.